welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance of trenches, perhaps the most recognisable feature of the Western Front, exploring how they came about, why they were so important, and how eventually they were abandoned. Well, hello again, Dan. Always a pleasure to be joining you on another episode of Not So Quiet on the Western Front. We're quite a few episodes into the series now. And before we actually get into our subject for today, I'd just like to thank everybody who's left us a review a comment, or indeed a question on whatever platform you've been listening on. We do read all of these. We do take them all on board. And thank you very much for taking the time to actually share these. And I know you feel the same way, Dan. Yeah, definitely. Big thanks to everyone that's engaged. It's it's fascinating to hear all that feedback and to read your messages. And we're really keen, I think, in the future to start engaging with those questions in the podcast as well. Maybe we can make a little segment where we uh, address some of those fascinating questions we've had in from readers. And some some great material as well, of course, to uh, to give us an idea for the direction that we're going to take this podcast in going forwards. So lots of exciting things coming up. Huge thank you, of course, to everyone that's already commented and reviewed. If you haven't already, do please drop in a quick review. It's incredibly helpful. Now, today we are going to be discussing perhaps the most ubiquitous feature of the First World War, and an aspect of the war that I think springs to all of our minds whenever we think about it. And this is, of course, trenches. We most readily associate trenches with the Western Front, where, of course, the Western Front stretches from the English Channel all the way down to the Swiss border, over 400 miles of continuous fortification. But trenches are actually found in just about every battlefront of the First World War, whether it's the Alpine Front between the Italians and the Austrians, the Salonika Front between the Allies and the Bulgarians, or even the Eastern Front between the Germans, Austro-Hungarians and Russians, right down, in fact, to the Gaza line in Palestine, or what is now Palestine, I should say, as the British face the Ottoman Empire. And so trenches are a ubiquitous feature of the First World War. They, in some ways, the the whole idea of trench warfare and what we understand of it now in the 21st century traces its origins to the First World War. But I think an interesting thing about trenches, Dan, is that the armies of the First World War are actually already quite familiar with them because they're by no means a new invention. Yeah, it's interesting. And depending how far back in history you go, you're going to find trenches or some variant of trenches in some way, shape or form for probably, in fact, thousands of years. But if we look in the more modern era, and uh, this comes back, I think, Spence, to the idea of why trenches come about in the first place. If we look at the era really since about the turn of the century, so 1900, around that kind of time period, we start to see that trenches do come about, and particularly we'll talk about it in a moment in the Boer War. I think one of the reasons that we can look at this in such detail is because we, in a sense, need to look at the weaponry of the time and how that's improved in the years leading up to these major conflicts like the Boer War. Because quite simply, you know, different to how it was in the Napoleonic era where you could just about stand in a field and have some round shot fired at you by a cannon a mile or two away and have a reasonable chance of living. By the time we get to 1900, you stand in a field and have an artillery shell fired at you, you've got zero chance of living for any length of time. And so as a result, of course, we do see trench warfare come about. There are many weapons that all of a sudden make make distance 
much less of a uh, of a, a friendly environment than it was before. At range now, you're going to be in real big trouble. You're going to have to have cover. And this is why we see this idea of trench warfare come about. And I know, Spence, the Boer War is a big one for you. So it gives an idea of kind of how trench warfare develops in the Boer War and how it's used. It's a great question. And I've written a, quite a lot about this. Viewers who are interested might like to check out one of my books on this, particularly from Boer War to World War. But the experience in the Boer War is really pivotal, not just for the British Army, but also for European armies who are observing the war. And what happens in the Boer War is the range of weapons is now really, really considerable. As you've already mentioned, Dan, the British Army actually calculates that fire from rifles becomes lethal about 600 yards from the enemy position. Now, I don't know how fit and fast you are, listeners, but if you're even if you're running flat out, covering 600 yards, sprinting at the enemy... Bear in mind, you're carrying your rifle, your kit, your rifle's got a bayonet attached to it. You're not going to cover that distance particularly quickly, and the enemy is going to be able to fire at you a lot as you are rushing them. And the distance in which attacks get stopped, therefore, the, the British just can't go any further against the Boers. And the Boers, remember, are not a trained army. They're actually a militia. There are a lot of outdoorsmen, a lot of big game hunters who are good shots. The Boers are able to pin down British advances at about 600 yards away, in some cases even further away. And when you're pinned down, that means you're lying flat. You're trying to take cover as best you can. But much of South Africa and much of where the war takes place is very flat and it's very devoid of terrain. In fact, South Africa in the 1899-1900 period has less undergrowth than it does now because there's so much more game and they eat all the undergrowth. So there's nowhere for you to hide. It's very difficult for you to actually do anything. So inevitably, British soldiers start trying to create little scrapes, just pile some dirt up in front of them, cover themselves, try and protect themselves from this incoming fire. And on the opposite side of the lines, the Boers are also digging considerable earthworks. I should add the Boers are actually doing this with lots and lots of forced labour as well, which is why they're able to construct such complex earthworks. But they dig in because the British have an artillery advantage. So the British are able to deliver pretty stonking artillery bombardments by the standards of South Africa onto Boer positions in the hope of destroying them and demoralising the Boer defenders. But the Boers find that as long as they're in a trench, British artillery fire is noisy and it's intimidating, but your actual chances of being killed or wounded by it, as long as you keep your heads down in that trench, are really, really minimal. You read about huge bombardments being launched against the Boers and it wounds three people. Classic example in the build-up to the Battle of Colenso, which takes place in December 1899, the British carry out the heaviest bombardment the Royal Artillery has launched since the Crimean War, so 50, nearly 50 years earlier, and it wounds three Boers. From memory, I think it's three. It may even be two. And so the power of trenches is already shown that if you're in a trench and you're being bombarded, you get real protection. If you're pinned down and you're in a firefight and you're able to create even what we would now call a foxhole, a foxhole simply just a small scrape you can basically get into or keep some cover in, that will also protect you from incoming bullets. And so that the British have had a lot of experience with trenches, and they actually start to train a lot more in trenches. They start to plan how they're going to deal with trenches if they face them in war. But of course, the Boer War, as big as it is for Britain, is a relatively small-scale war, and compared to the scale of the First World War, it's tiny. What's changed in the First World War is the not only the, the scale of the war is much faster, but also you've had another 15 years of weapons technology development. Yeah, it's very interesting. And even if you go back before the Boer War, in fact, I'm thinking of the, the US Civil War, which is, you could maybe equate in terms of the numbers involved, at least, huge numbers. But we can even see at that stage, trench warfare or, or some form of protection needing to be developed 
for large bodies of troops. And, you know, go another another few decades down the road and, and start heading towards the Boer War and then the First World War, we see that these large numbers of troops, very advanced weapons, and I suppose this lack of opportunity, Flanders being a perfect example, as, you, as you've rightly said, Flanders is pretty damn flat. Um, good chunks of the, the areas that the First World Wars fought over are very flat as well. And so what we need to find, basically, is people to develop cover. We see the same thing in the Anglo-Zulu War, and we see it in various different ways in the Second World War, where people are digging above ground. In this case, it's simpler and a little more secure to dig below ground. And so when we get to the First World War, there's actually a little bit in my mind as you're talking there, Spencer, I was just trying to think about how this might work. And with a fairly simplistic way, you can you can kind of look at how trench, trench warfare first came about. If you imagine taking a, a battalion's worth of men, a thousand men, and advancing them across some open fields in Flanders until they reach some kind of area where they're going to be able to come under enemy fire. If you were to ask them to do that in 1914, what you're going to find is as soon as they get within range or to the edge of range, they're going to hit the ground, as you say. And if you leave a group of men there for any significant period of time, 20 minutes, half an hour, first thing that's going to happen is that that entrenching tool is going to come out. You're going to dig yourself a little scrape to get yourself out of view at least. Now, if you stay there for a few minutes longer, you're going to probably just dig a bigger hole. And if you can imagine looking down at a field like this here, we're going to get maybe a thousand different individual shell scrapes, rifle pits, as they later become known, or trenches start to develop these little dots in a line. Now, if you're going to stay there any longer, you're going to start connecting those dots. That allows all of a sudden communication to move up and down the line, people to have conversations, people to be able to swap out different rounds of ammunition and things like that. And if you stay there any longer, let's say after a 24-hour period, all of a sudden you've got to get out of those trenches. You need to be relieved and rotated in and out of the line. Well, you can't just stand up and walk backwards because you're still going to be under fire. So what you start to find is people will dig backwards. And all of a sudden, in a short period of time, you can imagine this evolution of a front line and then later what becomes known as a communication trench. And a little beyond that, you're going to then get a support line dug in and beyond that, a reserve line. And you can imagine this spider's web of trenches getting developed up and down the Western Front. And it's incredible to me. If you think of the amount of digging that is done in 1914 to 1918, the British Army is thoroughly, thoroughly sick of digging stuff. There's a great account that sticks in my mind of a, a soldier in 1914. In fact, a young officer is writing home to his sister reporting on what one of the men in his platoon have said. And he says something along the lines of, uh, oh, Jack, did you hear? The British government has said, we've got to stay in Belgium until we put the whole of this f country into a sandbag. <laughs> now, the, yeah, it tells you, one, how frustrating it is, but secondly, how much work is involved. Because, of course, when the British Army comes out to the Western Front in 1914, there's not a single trench across these fields. And all of that is going to be developed incredibly in a matter of months and of course, it's going to develop and develop and develop, as we'll talk about in this episode. But the idea, Spence, I think, of, um, of trenches generally makes quite a lot of common sense. That being said, we need to consider, I think, to a certain extent, just how this line of the Western Front is developed, why it runs in the course that it does, because of course, it's not a straight line. It takes in features and also it runs through different terrain as well. It's not just flat grounds in Flanders. No, it doesn't. And there's... So much to sort of unpick and discuss here, because at the start of the war, though all armies trained to an extent in using trenches, the extent to which it's really taken seriously may be questioned. Just to look at it in the British Army's perspective, apart from in India, where there's a lot more room to manoeuvre, 
training in Britain tends to not involve digging trenches because most of this training is taken place on a private land that the army has hired for the purposes of training. And the local farmer, the local squire, well, he doesn't mind the army marching about his land, but the last thing he wants is them digging a great big hole in the middle of it. And so instead you read about army manoeuvres where instead of actually digging a trench, people have laid out a line of tape instead to say this is now a trench and soldiers are lying on top of it. And I think in some respects that shows that although people are aware of the need for trenches in war, they're not anticipating the scale that they're going to actually employ them in 1914. But two things change that mental equation. The first is the sheer violence of 1914. The casualties are enormous. And it's interesting that both the French and the Germans anticipate massive casualties in 1914. It's expected, but so also it is expected the war will be short, that it will be very bloody, but it's going to be over in about six months. Of course, that doesn't happen, but the bloody aspect really does. And where you've got modern machine guns by the standards of 1914, hundreds of artillery pieces firing and raining shrapnel and high explosive down on you, hundreds, thousands of magazine rifles blasting away. The battlefield is several factors deadlier than it's been in the Boer War or the US Civil War. Simply surviving in this battlefield without some form of cover is basically impossible. You're being engaged thousands of yards from your target. You're being shot to pieces. And so the only option is, is to start trying to create your own, your own cover, as you've described, dig trenches, Dan. So it's so bloody that the armies have to protect themselves. And the second factor that leads to the creation of the Western Front is the sheer density of forces on the Western Front. There's no room for manoeuvre here. The armies crash into each other. And after that initial period of the war of manoeuvre in August and uh, into September and October to an extent, armies start to dig in on the ground that they hold. And there's no way to outflank them. Yes, there's the race to the sea where both armies are trying to reach the channel. But guess what? They eventually reach the channel and you can't outflank each other in the middle of the sea. And so they create this gigantic line, the Western Front, where the armies are locked against each other with no gaps between their interlocking pieces. And this has created what we call the Western Front, this huge density of forces combined with their need to dig in to protect themselves just from the sheer violence, the sheer amount of bullets, explosives and shrapnel balls that are raining down has created the longest continuous manned line of fortifications in the world at this time. And crucially, the Germans here have an advantage, which we've mentioned several times over the course of this podcast series, and that's that they get to choose where they dig in. And they're always going to choose the high ground. Yeah, it's it's a really important point, and, and it's hugely relevant really throughout the entire war. There's one thing that British infantry always seem to comment on when you talk about any attack in the First World War. They say they always seem to be attacking uphill. And good reason is they usually are attacking uphill, actually, because the Germans are generally taking the high ground. Later on, they're taking the reverse slopes of the high ground, which is another thing that we'll come into and talk about, I'm sure. But taking high ground and being able to pick your own spots for defense is a really important point. And there's a mindset element here, I think, Spence, that we can bring into the picture. It's not so, not so much the case in 1914, but really from April 1915 onwards, the Germans are very much taking a defensive posture on the Western Front. So they said, in effect, we've captured 90% of Belgium, big old chunk of Northern France, and we're here to stay. If you want us to leave, you've got to make us. And in that kind of mindset, you can now imagine that the Germans are saying, okay, from our point of view, in terms of digging trenches, digging protection, and all of this kind of thing, protecting our troops, 
we are we've got the idea in our heads that we're going to be here for a long time therefore we're going to expend a lot of effort in making our trenches as deep secure and well sighted as possible the brits and the french and the belgians on the other side they've got an offensive mindset and so in many ways they're looking at this saying well why are we going to be expending huge amounts of time and effort and material in creating very deep very well revetted trenches if next week we're hoping we're going to be on the other side of the hill and so actually you get a big change. This is really clear in places like Luce in 1915 and especially the Somme in 1916. You know, there is a huge amount of digging that's done around the German defences, very deep dugouts put in place, the same kind of things you simply don't see in the British lines. And a lot of that is down to a mentality. Now, for the guys on the ground, that doesn't really mean a hell of a lot because when those shells come in, you want well-constructed trenches. But that mentality in general is really important. And if we go back a couple of stages to really when that first kicks in, about the end of the first Battle of Ypres, uh, the second Battle of Ypres, I should say, in 1915, the Germans at that point have staked their claim, put their position there. And the one advantage they've got at any point in the war is they can always go backwards and they can always dig trenches, dig new positions undercover on the most favorable ground they want, losing 500 yards or 200 50 yards or whatever it might be is not a real big deal for them actually they've already captured plenty of territory they can just fall back to the next ridge or the next most defensible position the brits and the french in order to do that have literally got to drive the enemy out and so this is one of the key things it actually dictates a lot when it comes to the story of the western front i think importantly as well spence what we need to consider is that famous or infamous piece of ground in between the two trenches in between the front lines that of course is no man's land and following on from that British idea, with the Brits being the aggressors, they actually come up with a policy which in effect says, well, we're going to own the ground in the middle as well. Our front line ends on the enemy parapet. And that really sets the stall out, I think, for much of the, uh, amongst other things, trench raiding that's going to go on. It does, because as we've been building up this picture of trenches and where they appear and why they appear... Keen-eared listeners, you'll have picked up that there's an element of distance here, that because you can be engaged as an attacker advancing against a trenched position from potentially a 1,000 yards or potentially even longer range than that, certainly a 1,000 yards, certainly 500 yards, there's going to be a gap between the two trenches. And if there's one thing that trenches are really designed to do, as well as protect you, that's their first and foremost duty, they're also designed to stop the attacker approaching them. And there's one element that's really important to remember about trenches in the First World War that distinguishes them from the trenches of the Boer War and the trenches of the US Civil War. And that is a piece of technology that is never designed for this. It's actually designed with a completely different intention in mind, but it will completely define war between 1915 and 1917, and that's barbed wire. Barbed wire has been invented in the 1800s as an agricultural tool. You put barbed wire up, around your livestock especially. It keeps predators out. It keeps your livestock in. It's very simple, very, very effective. It's still used to this day. But gradually, armies begin to understand that you can use this as a defensive measure as well. Now, in the US Civil War, there are defences for trenches, abatis, which are basically spiked logs that point away from the trench. 
The boars use tripwires, which are just wires laid at the ground, so you can trip over them and alert the enemy, or, or you're charging and you trip over them and get knocked to the ground. And in the Russo-Japanese War, which had been 1904 to 1905, there'd been some use of barbed wire to screen certain positions. But what we see really starting in 1914 and then accelerating incredibly rapidly is barbed wire employed on a vast scale. There's a fantastic anecdote in the wonderful British soldier's memoir, Old Soldiers Never Die by Frank Richards, where he remembered at First Eep in November 1914, the Royal Engineers arriving at the British line to put out what he said must have been the only strand of barbed wire on the entire British sector. <laughs> and they stretch it out and they set it, in Frank Richards' memory, at a height that would not have impeded a giraffe. They set it way too high and they lay it out with great ceremony and then disappear. And it starts like that, with just a single strand of barbed wire, but very quickly it's going to turn into vast belts of barbed wire. And barbed wire is going to evolve along with the trenches. It starts as strands of barbed wire laid out by posts. Then it turns into great big rolls of barbed wire, and more and more of it is laid out. And barbed wire is incredibly cheap to produce. It's really easy to actually deploy. At its crudest level, you just throw it out of your trench. But it completely impedes movement. And it impedes movement for several reasons. You can't simply push through barbed wire. The spikes on it will catch your clothes. Uh, they'll impale your skin. Extremely painful to be caught in barbed wire. And the extent to which you can become stuck on barbed wire cannot be underestimated. You can be completely trapped on this barbed wire. You cannot move through it. You might be impaled in a lot of pain whilst people are shooting at you. Being stuck on the wire is a death sentence in the First World War. There's no escape from it. It's, it's, it's deadly. But at the same time, it's really difficult to breach, especially in 1915 and 1916. The infantry doesn't really have a weapon that can do it. They have wire clippers, a bit like modern garden secateurs, but that's cutting one strand at a time. And this wire is tough. It's not just like snipping your roses. This is cutting through metal, and you're probably doing it whilst you're under very heavy fire too. So cutting through it by hand, it's not practical in an intense battle. There isn't really explosive weapons, at least not until later in the war, that can breach it. So you have to rely on your artillery to breach it instead. But of course, artillery firing on barbed wire, barbed wire is just a fairly small target. And for much of the war, the British try and cut it by bursting shrapnel above it. So the shrapnel pieces fly through the barbed wire and sever it. That is a very unscientific way of using your artillery to destroy a very, very simple piece of defensive technology. If you use high explosive on it, well, the problem is until 1917 and the advent of better fuses, high explosive shells tend to bury themselves in the ground and then explode. So it just throws the barbed wire up in the air and guess what? It's landed and now it's in an even more awkward position for you to breach. And so the presence of barbed wire with trenches and with machine guns creates this absolutely deadly trifecta, which completely prohibits movement. Unless you can breach that barbed wire, you cannot reach the enemy trenches. That's it. There is no way you're getting through it unless that barbed wire is gone, which means you have to dedicate all your artillery to breach it. But guess what? That means you don't have enough artillery to suppress the defenders in the trench itself. So you have a deadly decision to make. Do you dedicate cutting the barbed wire or do you dedicate trying to smash the trenches? If you try and do both, which you really want to do, you're probably not going to have enough firepower to do either. And this combination, barbed wire, trenches and machine guns, is what makes this battlefield so incredibly lethal. You can't move across the battlefield easily. You have to do something about the obstacle in front of you and you're being shot at a lot. 
And to bring this all the way back to the point you were making, Dan, one of the ways that all armies start to experiment with, well, how might we get across no man's land, as it's called, how might we breach barbed wire, is the introduction of something that hasn't really been seen outside siege warfare up until this point. And this is the art of what becomes trench raiding. And trench raiding comes in lots of different flavours and lots of different styles. In fact, in 1915, the British Army doesn't even have a word for a trench raid. That's how obscure it is in some ways. Instead, they call it enterprises, where just a handful of guys will sneak out of their trenches, sneak into no man's land, cut part of the German barbed wire secretly, pretty dangerous and daring work, you've got to be silent at the time, and then try and get into the German trenches and either kill or capture some Germans in there. Capturing them off, of course, they've got to drag them back. And guess what? The Germans are trying to do the same to the British. The French are trying to do the same to the Germans, and the Germans are trying to do the same to the French. And it's very small scale, it's very localised, but it is nerve-wracking, deadly work to enter no man's land on these secret missions. And Although the British have done some trench raiding in the Boer War, particularly at the Siege of Mafeking, for example, this is basically an unknown art. And in 1915-16 onwards, you start to see armies gradually learning, well, how do we exit our trench at night for a raid? How do we open up our own barbed wire so we can go outside? How do we coordinate with flares, with covering fire and so on? And trench raiding, I'd love to do a full episode on trench raiding because it, it is an art in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to do a full episode on barbed wire, to be honest with you. I think it's equally fascinating. But that you paint a really powerful picture there, actually. And as you were, as you were talking about it, I was just thinking about the, the ground in between those two trenches. It's really worth uh, dwelling on for a moment because, of course, not only is it a horrific place to be, uh, it's an incredibly deadly one and, and really a really unhealthy one in, in many different ways. The, the idea of um, barbed wire that you mentioned, though, just to go back to that really briefly, I think one of the things that barbed wire is sometimes overlooked for is not what it, um, not the, the actual ability to stop troops, but also the ability, ability to funnel them. If you as a defender have a single machine gun, well, why don't you leave a gap in your wire and just point your machine gun at that gap? Because you're already funneling troops into a certain direction. We see this in many places, including places like Vimy Ridge, where you have big belts of wire with conveniently spaced gaps looking rather attractive, in which case you know any assaulting troops are going to go straight for those gaps. And, well, if they've got a couple of machine guns pointed at them, nobody's getting through. So even if they're not physically stopping people, they are channeling them in some way, shape, or form. And, of course, there's wire on both sides, protecting both sides of the trenches in no man's land. Just briefly on no man's land, though, and I think trench warfare and trench raiding in general, it's worth pointing out, it's really nighttime when the trenches and no man's land comes to life in the Great War. You know, we quite often, I think, have these, these ideas of daylight activity. Actually, the activity that takes place on the Western Front, particularly in no man's land, and for good reason, almost exclusively takes place at night, whether it's uh, trench raids, whether it's trying to gather information on the enemy's position by being out in no man's land, whether it's repairing your own wire, whether it's putting in new sets of wire, whether it's uh, even repairing parts of your trenches. Almost all of that happens exclusively at night. One of the weapons I think that, or one of the inventions I think that's often overlooked as well is, is really interesting. You mentioned at first when barbed wire is first put out, it's kind of staked out with wooden stakes and hammered into the ground um, in order to pin it in place. Well, that that's a pretty damn dangerous thing to do. If, uh, if anybody wants to go and stand out in no man's land with a mallet and a hammer trying to, <laughs> trying to whack a, a wooden stake into the ground, you're going to get killed quite quick. 
Um, so one of the things that's invented and used, in fact, by both sides is a Swedish invention that takes a French name, the coule de cochon, or the pig's tail, is a corkscrew picket. And we do see these out on the Western Front. Even today, I discover them sometimes when walking the battlefield. One of the key things about this is you can put them in silently. They're known as the silent picket. So you can take a piece of wood now, or you can take a bayonet, you can even take a rifle. You can thread it through one of the loops of this corkscrew picket, and you can rotate it like you would uh, the corkscrew on a wine bottle, and it silently screws into the ground. Clever invention, a great example of evolution of trench warfare in a way, but these are used by both sides, sold by the Swedish to both sides in enormous numbers during the Great War. But they're a great example of how, after a set period of time, these men on the Western Front are coming up with ways to minimize the amount of casualties they'll take. And this really brings us back, I think, to the entire essence of trench warfare as a whole. It, the idea is to minimize attrition on the front line. And this is why we see trench lines get better. We see trench lines get deeper. We see trench lines get more comfortable because discomfort in the First World War in terms of trench warfare, particularly in the early months of the war, Spence, is quite often to do with water. And water has a huge impact, particularly on the feet of men. And of course, we get the, the, famous, the famous illnesses and injuries that come about with things like trench foot. We do, because we talked a lot about the fighting elements of trenches and why they're useful, why they're powerful, how they're fitted and so on. But this actually raises another feature that is unusual and surprising to the armies of the First World War. We already mentioned the, the armies know that trench warfare exists. You made a great point right at the start of this podcast, Dan, that trench warfare probably stretches back to antiquity. One of the great advantages the Romans had during their conquest was that they had an engineering branch of their army which could dig field works that the barbarian tribes they faced just had no idea how to deal with. So trench warfare has been around for thousands of years, but it's never been around on this scale for this duration. This is genuinely new because these troops are occupying, in some cases, the same sector of trench for years. There are parts of the Western Front where the trenches simply never move. Once they've established, they just don't move. I'm thinking particularly down towards the Swiss border where it's difficult to operate down there for various reasons, which people aren't moving. So you're living in the same area of trenches for years of your life. And this means that you actually have to find ways to actually just make this area habitable. And we discussed previously in the Christmas Truce episode about the, the absolute misery of being in a waterlogged trench, suffering from trench foot, trench hand, its rarest cousin trench mouth, all these god-awful diseases that will cripple you for life if they're left untreated. And maintaining just your sanity and your health in these trenches is really difficult. But as 1914 turns into 1915, it's not just about maintaining your, your your basic comfort. It's also about maintaining your combat effectiveness because it's no good. You, your troops cannot fight if they are knee-deep in water all the time. The guns will get jammed with mud. Troops will get taken out with trench foot and so on. And so trenches start to evolve not merely as platforms for combat and bases for you to launch attacks or indeed repel attacks, but also areas where hundreds and even thousands of men are going to be living each and every day. And this is something I find fascinating, that the trenches go from, as you've wonderfully described, just these stretches of dirt, really, or even drainage ditches where some Tommies have thought, well, we're not digging a hole here, we're just going to occupy this. They start turning into these permanent, basically, places for you to live 
not just for, you know, 24 hours, but in some cases for several weeks where you do your trench rotation and we start to see them become much more permanent fixtures. You start to, they become deeper. They start to have features added to them and they almost become sort of miniature outdoor towns. Yeah, it's it, it's amazing. And in fact, certain places of the Western Front, you can still see elements of this even a hundred years plus later on. But you can understand as well why they evolve. As you described, you know, when people spend any significant period of time in a trench, you can imagine with trench rotation, which no doubt we'll cover in a little bit of detail as we continue through this podcast. Let's say you go into an area of trench for your, your four days in the front line. Um, four days in the front line, about another four in the support or reserve, and then eight way back out of the line before you go in for another four days in the front line. Well, you've only got to do two or three rotations of that. By the time you get to your third or fourth time in the front line, you're really quite sick of being soaking wet or whatever it might be. And you can imagine these new groups of guys going in start to make little improvements as they go. One of the big changes is putting duck boards in. So the idea of actually having a raised platform for people to stand on so that you can have water run directly underneath. But you can imagine as well, people start to dig out little cubby holes where they can they can be to one side, where they can get themselves a little bit of shelter or rest. Or it might be as simple as you dig a little shelf or add in a little place to stick a candle. But if you do that day after day, week after week, with group of men after group of men, all of a sudden you start to see there are the, quite a lot of these, uh, these comforts start come in. Now, I say comforts, I don't mean that they're comfortable and I don't think they're ever designed to be, but they are relatively safe. And this is one of the things that they're designed for in their primary purpose is to stop guys getting killed on a daily basis. Now, you are still, in fact, always going to be vulnerable to shell fire, particularly mortar fire, as uh, we'll talk about in trench warfare. But what you're much less vulnerable to, provided you don't do anything silly like stick your head above the top of a parapet on a regular basis, you're actually pretty much impervious to small arms fire in trench warfare. And this is a, a big killer in the early months of the war and not really a big killer after that. There are, of course, we do get snipers and, and marksmen from really January 1915 onwards start to plague the Western Front and they'll take targets of opportunities when they turn up. But in terms of living and surviving in trench warfare, your four or eight day stint in the front lines definitely becomes more survivable. In fact, it becomes more comfortable. That's an important thing to mention. And, you know, trenches... They're very different in different parts of the line. You know, up in the Aisne, they're, they're literally hacked out of, of mountainside. In lowland Flanders and in certain areas that the British occupy in 1915, they're not trenches at all. In fact, they're butts. They're raised above ground because of a high water table. But the general features that they include, like having these crenellations in, i.e. not running in a straight line, these various elements, they're pretty much seen across the board. And they're important, these developments. The idea, of Spence, for example, of not having a trench run in a straight line, it's fairly simple. It's quite well known, but it's an important one. Yes, it is. And lots of these quite simple and well-known lessons have to be learned the hard way. So when the trenches are first being formed, especially on the Allied side, where, where people are digging in with the anticipation we're going to attack from these pretty soon, we don't need to make them really formal. Uh, a mistake, for example, the British make when they're first digging their trenches is they, they place their trenches to get the best line of fire. And that usually means you're on the forward slope of whatever terrain feature you're on. 
Well, that's good if you're shooting at the enemy, but it also exposes you to enemy fire. And pretty quickly, the British have to learn that, that sighting your trenches in full view of the enemy is a really bad idea. In fact, this is one of the features that contributes to the widening of no man's land through 15, uh, certainly into 15 from 14, because the British especially realised we're, we're putting our trenches too close to the Germans. We can't really fire effectively at them, but they're just pounding us to pieces. They can see us from every position. We're actually pulling our trenches back slightly. And other lessons, as you've mentioned, Dan, like don't build your trench in a straight line, because the, one of the first things that happens in 1914 is soldiers just dig trenches in a straight line. That just seems obvious to them. But all that needs to happen is just a small group Two, and we're already talking two or three Germans need to get into your trench. And what's this? They can now fire the entire length of your trench. You can't actually turn your guns to bear against them. They can shoot left and right and they can just mow down everybody in the trench. So instead, you need to start putting kinks and turns in this so that there are other positions from where you can fight from, you can fight back. There's also the other factor that if a German high explosive shell a big Jack Johnson, a 5.9-inch shell, lands smack bang in the middle of it, and it's completely straight. Well, guess what? The blast from that is going to race down those uh, left and right of the trench. It's going to be captured within that, and it's going to be devastating for everybody. Whereas if there are turns and obliques in the trench, the blast is absorbed in those, so you won't just have everybody killed by a single shell blowing up in there. And that also raises another point that brings us back to trench raiding. And this is something that hadn't really been considered that much because previously the armies had tended to think, okay, trenches will exist, but they're temporary. Those trenches will be broken and then fighting will go on as it's done previously. Fighting in what the British come to refer to as the green fields beyond, where you'll be back to manoeuvring and cavalry and all this. Sir John French, who's commanding the British Army in 1914 and 15, he actually writes to one of his many mistresses in 1915, complaining and bemoaning about what he calls this enormous crust of defence that's built up the Western Front and saying how much he can't wait for it to be cracked open and then he can fight a proper battle against the Germans in the open country beyond. So people expect trenches to be broken and then something that looks like the early part of 1914 to be restored. But that doesn't happen for a very long time. And instead, a new form of fighting starts to emerge. And this is actually the act of fighting in a trench. Because for a long time, the armies have tended to think trenches are just obstacles to be crossed. You just break through them, move on from them, leave them in your wake. But as the trenches become more and more complicated and there's more and more layers to them, what actually happens is you start getting very fierce fighting inside trenches. You can't just simply sweep across them anymore because they're multi-layered, multi-positioned. Instead, you've got to jump into a trench and actually carry out fighting. And armies get some experience of doing that through trench raiding, but of course, actually doing this in a pitch battle where the British might be in one part of a trench, the Germans might be in another part of a trench, is something that the armies have not trained for at all. They have not anticipated this intense in-trench fighting. And it's going to pose all sorts of problems for both armies. Yeah, and it's going to be horrific as well. This is one of the things, a great example that springs to mind here is the, the Somme and the latter part of the Somme, the Battle of the Ancre in 19, November 1916. You can imagine here the uh, the reality of getting into and clearing an enemy trench is absolutely nerve-wracking in the extreme. And, and one of the examples that I've got in my mind is a, a two-company attack, and they're, they're actually attacking into the side of an old trench. 
And the Germans, in order to defend this trench, the, the line shifted slightly after the capture of Tietbau in, in September and October 1916. And the Brits are basically attacking lengthways down a trench. What they have to do in, in the first instance is kind of uncork the bottle because there are some machine guns put in, in a position known as a trench block. It's quite literally a, a barricade within a trench with some, uh, It's in this case, it's got a couple of machine guns pointing straight down a, an unoccupied piece of trench. But in order to get through that, you've got to unblock or uncork that bottle and then attack straight up it. But the process of attacking straight up it is, is as I say, nerve-wracking in the extreme. And you start to get these small tactical developments take place. And, and the idea of what becomes known, and hence the uh, the phrase, by the way, bombing along, is uh, is something that happens out on the Western Front. And it's, uh, I mean, we can describe it to a certain extent, I think. The general idea, if you're part of a, a section or a platoon that's been given the task of clearing a section of trench in 1916, what you're going to do is you're going to get your best cricket player, your best bowler or your best grenade men or bombing men as they were at the time who are going to be armed with literally sacks of Mills bombs. They're going to have somebody with them with another sack of Mills bombs. And their idea is they're going to be going from traverse to traverse along the trench, throwing grenades one or two traverses ahead Ahead of the man throwing the grenade, you're going to have your two most vicious, two strongest bayonet men, whose job is to keep the bomb thrower alive, and they're going to be waiting for the explosion and then rushing around the next traverse, bayoneting anything that moves, and you're going to go on and on and on, clearing 400 metres of trench line, which isn't unheard of. A, a man in the Hertfordshire Regiment gets a DCM for doing it on the Ankara. He clears something like 400 metres of trench line with him and his two mates, they killed dozens of Germans in doing so. But imagine the, the fear and the uncertainty that every traverse you go round could be chock full of enemy. Or the fact that you're going to have grenades thrown back at you. And you may have people appearing at the side of trenches. All of a sudden, this, uh, this very long distance that we traditionally think of fighting taking place over, as we said at the start of the episode, hundreds of yards, if not thousands of yards, this is going to take place at feet inches it's going to be that close and it's incredibly nerve-wracking it takes a certain type of man i think to really do that job well but it's in, it's an important point to make that once trenches are got into they can be defeated and the idea of bombing along and clearing trenches is very effective but it just takes some incredible bravery to do it it does and i think this captures something about the first world war that, that sometimes we're apt to forget that we we often think about the the difficulties of crossing no man's land of going over the top and of course that's that's harrowing in itself crossing the that deadly ground hoping that the german barbed wire has been breached and you can actually get into the trench under fire from many directions the deafening sound of both the british bombardment and the german counter bombardment and we tend to think that all the casualties are actually suffered in no man's land and of course thousands upon thousands are but that fighting in trenches is really vicious and close-ranged and it has to be said particularly deadly because when you're that close to the enemy whether you're British, German or French it doesn't really matter and you're fighting that closely your adrenaline's up your blood's up there's plenty of instances where people put their hands up and unfortunately they're not taken prisoner they're, there's too much it's too intense people have lost their their composure and they just want to you know kill effectively and that contrast from running across no man's land which is incredibly traumatic and disturbing and frightening and then you're actually in the trenches and you're fighting at point blank range you know, really as you've 
really got across, Dan. Point-blank range grenades, bayonets, pistols, rifle butts, improvised weapons, because people use lots and lots of viciously improvised trench weapons with their clubs or axes or knives or knuckle dusters. This is a, a really brutal feature of fighting. And as you say, it does take a certain mindset to thrive in this. I'd really be interested in studying this uh, and trench fighting and trench raiding in a future episode. But it gives you some idea that once you've got in, once you've crossed no man's land, once you've gone through that, the battle often isn't over. Instead, you have to get into the enemy's trenches and you have to clear them. And because the trenches are built to resist this, there are defensive points at various uh, points. There's trench blocks and so forth. It can be a grueling and bitter process. And I'm reminded of a, a battle fought in an area we've discussed before at Luce, the Hohenzollern Redoubt, where in September and October 1915, 28th Division, a regular division, real tough outfit of the British Army, is fighting in the trenches in the redoubt. It eventually gets driven out, but there's an account given where there's a trench block that's separating British and German troops from one another. It's very wet, and the British are waiting there. They know there's going to be an attack, and all of a sudden, the, the, the first indication there's an attack coming is they just suddenly hear a whistle go, and then there's the sound of running feet, and this hail of grenades comes flying over. That's how close they are. And the Germans have actually put a blasting charge in the trench block. It detonates, it explodes. Actually, some British soldiers are wounded by pieces of wreckage flying. And then the Germans come pouring through. And the British and the Germans found themselves fighting hand to hand uh, within seconds. That, that's the speed with which it can actually happen. So this is grueling fighting and uh, not to be envied, it has to be said. And the British start to learn about how to deal with this type of fighting and start to assign groups known as mopper-uppers which sounds, you know, sounds like you're about to clean your kitchen. But in actual fact, they're the troops who are specifically designed to clear these trenches, clear dugouts, clear bunkers within the trench system. And they don't ask too many questions, Dan. No, they don't. And they don't really have the time to be doing it either because actually, you know, that life and death at these kind of ranges, they're, they're moments away at any point. And uh, there's, there's quite often there are situations, as you've mentioned, and in fact, a, a number of, and this, maybe this is something we should look at in the future, actually, the idea of, uh, I, I suppose, what you could only describe as war crimes to a certain extent in the front lines in the in the Western Front, because there are certainly situations on both sides of the line where no quarter is asked nor given. And this goes on throughout the war and goes on, no doubt, throughout all of the major belligerent nations as well. You know, the, the roles that these guys have been assigned in typically a kind of second wave assault moppers uppers. So... Quite often you'll have leading troops pushing ahead, trying to isolate troops, and then you have the moppers-uppers come in that are going to then isolate and destroy positions, sometimes taking prisoners in other situations, not. But this makes, uh, of course, trench warfare a very unhealthy place to be. And whilst uh, I know, Spence, we always, and understandably, I suppose, gravitate towards the idea of trench warfare in action, so one of the things we might want to do is just go back a stage and, and look at the reality of what trench warfare was really like and this takes us back, I think, to the idea that we've covered in the past of, you know, trench warfare isn't fighting every day. There are those bitter and, and terrifying moments. The famous phrase that a, a veteran was asked in the latter part of the war to explain what trench warfare was like. And it, it sticks in my mind as being a fascinating and very thought-provoking example. He says, for me, it's easy. He said, trench warfare is 90% bored stiff, 9% frozen stiff, and 1% scared stiff. Now, a bit like 
match of the day or any of your favourite sports shows, we're focusing on on the uh, the dramatic moments here when you watch the highlights of a game. Actually, nobody shows those mundane moments. But for a lot of guys in the front line, life in trench warfare, despite what we've just covered, those highlights is very mundane actually, and this is something that we should uh, we should really consider because. 24 hours in a trench, and this is maybe a big picture thing, Spencer, but I, I quite often talk about this when I'm on the battlefields here. You know, when you're out on the Somme or Ypres or Arras or wherever you might be across the Western Front, you can look around you and you can see the skyline. You can see all of the features. If you put yourself in the shoes of a British soldier or a French soldier or a German one for that matter, and you talk to them about where they are and what they can see in trench warfare, it's going to be a very boring answer because what they can typically see is a muddy wall in front of them, the same guy they always see to their left, and the same guy they always see to their right. They've got no idea whether they're on the Somme, at Ypres, Arras, or anywhere for that matter. The war and the, the size of a, a typical soldier's world in the First World War in trench warfare is very, very small. It is. And this is something that it, we're, we're really apt to forget, as you say, we we're drawn to this, I think. We're drawn to the combat element. We tend to think the Western Front was non-stop intense action with constant firing and fighting. When for large portions of the Western Front, you might even say the majority of the Western Front, life was really defined by boredom. That you would be in a trench that was too high for you to see out of. And indeed, it's risky for you to actually stick your head over that trench. You might get potted by a sniper or taken off by an artillery blast, you spend most of your time maintaining that trench, so repairing small bits of damage to it, carrying out some routine maintenance work, standing guard, waiting for something to happen, and nothing ever does happen. Occasionally interspersed with there might be a bit of bombardment or a sudden burst of fire, but generally it's really dull. And it's no surprise then that you start to find soldiers actually doing things, the kind of things that young men who are bored will always do. Now, on a more productive sense, you read in certain sectors, this seems to be more of a French activity than a British. I think British officers clamp down on this. You read about the French actually starting to maintain small boxes of flowers in their trenches and so on. And the British actually encounter this sometimes. Sometimes when the British take over from a French sector, they say the French had planted flowers. This is terrible. How unwarlike the French are. Well, I think you could see a contrast between the two armies here. The French plant some flowers and, and beautify parts of their trench, whereas the British, as far as I can tell from my reading of this, bored British soldiers tend to do really stupid things, like try and throw things into the trenches, mess around, and often end up accidentally injuring themselves or damaging the trench in the process. That The number of soldiers who are injured through horseplay in the trenches is a surprising figure. These are soldiers who've got nothing to do. They're bored, they're waiting around, they're having a play fight and somebody's rifle goes off and whoops, Charlie next to you has just lost a toe. Um, it does happen quite a lot. And so time spent in the trenches is cold. It is boring. It's more about maintenance and maintaining these trenches than anything else for most soldiers. Now, in some ways, this actually suits particularly the British soldier. And it's almost a bit like you, you're back at work. Bear in mind, large numbers of British soldiers have previously had civilian jobs that by our standards are really tough, heavy industry, mining, etc. And life in the trenches is cold and it's wet and it's not especially pleasant, but is it tougher than your day job if you're a Welsh coal miner? Well, probably not, actually. And in fact, there's almost a workplace routine starts to get to establish, certainly by 1916 and 17. Unless you're in a major battle, you'll spend some time in the trenches, then you'll be rotated out, 
you'll spend some time behind the lines, then you'll rotate back in. And indeed, some soldiers even associate that move from a rear area to a frontline trench as commuting back to the front because you move down these communication trenches. In some cases, you might be brought up by trains to actually get to that point and then march into the trench. And there's even there's a rhythm of life starts to be established that although it's boring, although there's the constant threat of death and danger, for a lot of soldiers that the main enemy is actually boredom and everything that comes with it. Now, now there is one uh, proviso to this, because during a period of major battle, that will not be happening. Instead, the fighting will be truly intense. And there's also sectors of the front which are never quite like this. And for the British, the Ypres sector is never like this. Ypres is a notoriously active sector, to use the euphemistic phrase of the First World War, which means there's constant sniping, shelling, raiding, sense of perpetual danger. Just the daily casualties around Ypres are always high as mortar shells drop in, the sniping and gunfire constantly. But for other sectors of the front, and I mentioned down by the Swiss border, for example, almost nothing happens. You're, you're more likely to be injured accidentally shooting yourself or accidentally messing around with a grenade and it goes off in your hand than you probably are by enemy action. So life in the trenches, it varies a lot by sector. It varies a lot by the time of the war. And as you rightly say, Dan, for most of the time, it's actually a battle against the elements and a battle against boredom. Yeah, you raise a couple of really good points there. And I think one of the fascinating things that I find here is even if you look at some of these names that today we associate, as you say, with those kind of constantly dangerous locations some of them are, are really not the case you know if we mention the Somme I'd imagine for myself and for, for most others perhaps yourself Spencer when we think about that you think wow deadly very deadly very dangerous area well that's true but it's true for only a very specific period of time if you're on the Somme in 1915 you're considered to have a pretty good post actually because it's really quite quiet and in 1917 again it's fairly quiet as you say the Ypres salient is really always deadly. In certain areas within the Ypres salient, Hill 60, for example, are always, always deadly. So there are parts of the line that nobody really wants to spend any significant time in. But for others, um, particularly down in some of the French sectors, there there's areas where you've got 10 guys covering a quarter of a mile of trench line. It's that sparsely held. And this idea of live and let live is, is really dominates throughout no man's land and there could be a very wide no man's land there by the way 600 800 meters uh, you know that's not unheard of in certain areas up in the Ypres salient you might have 20 or 30 meters you know in in those kind of areas the distance between trenches is measured as just slightly further than your strongest guy can throw a grenade the vimy sector is perhaps slightly under that so there's a huge variation, and sometimes I think we tar the trench warfare brushes just being something that's the same across the board. Of course, there's there's huge amounts of variation in it. And certain troops liked being in certain areas more than others. And what I think you see, which is really fascinating if anybody ever has a chance to explore something like a trench map, is from 1915 onwards, as these new areas of trench are developed, you start to see some, some kind of um, signs of who it was doing the developing, because... If you imagine with a huge network of trenches, you also have to really understand how these work because they're very, very easy to get lost in a system of trenches. But what you see is in 1915, when a new section of trenches dug by men of the 47th London Division, the battalion that's digging it is going to start naming those trenches as they dig them. 
So you'll have Old Kent Road put into the front line in a certain area. And even to the extent that if Old Kent Road in, um, in, in real life back in London, if you turn left off Old Kent Road and you reach Oxford Street, you'll see that same process repeated with trenches. So Old Kent Road, turn left off Oxford Street. It's a clever way of allowing people to remember how to get about the trenches, as well, I think, in certain ways of allowing the men to feel a little bit more like, you know, reminiscent of home. And the idea of being homely in a trench in general sound, might sound like a bit of an oxymoron, but actually there are some elements where, where home life is important. Um, in fact, trench routine as a whole is in many ways replicates as much as it can home life. You have a set breakfast time. You have a time to get up in the morning. It's a very unpopular time when you've got to launch your daily stand two, which is quite literally to man the parapet. Of course, dawn and dusk being traditionally the times that the enemy are going to attack. So you're going to man your parapet half an hour before dawn and half an hour before dusk. Ironically, the Germans on the other side of no man's land are doing exactly the same thing. So there's very little attacking goes on. But every day, everybody mans their parapet. You're then going to have things like your breakfast brought up, usually up communication trenches. If you're lucky, still warm by the time it gets to you. You've got to clean your rifles day in and day out, but only half of your men could do it at one time. Because you imagine a, a German trench raid arrives and your entire platoon's got their rifles in pieces. You're going to have a major problem. You're going to have men who have got job to repair any damage that's been done overnight. You've got men who are going to have a chance to have a sleep. You've got guys who are writing a few letters home and then lunch comes along and then on into the afternoon, you've got, again, a bit of letter writing. Somebody's got to go and get the rations. Somebody brings some more wire up. Somebody's got to account for the stores in that particular section of trench. The corporal comes around to make sure you're doing your job. And then you've got your evening meal. And then you've got stand two again. And then you've got the whole process of night. And another day in trench warfare is around the corner. It's fascinating how these kind of uh, routines are established so quickly. But at the same time, Spencer, you know, they are a routine of sorts but they can at any time be interspersed by these moments of abject terror. They can. And this actually brings us neatly round to how trench raiding perversely becomes more and more dangerous depending on what type of sector you're in. Because trench raiding, as we mentioned, begins in 19, well, begins in 1914, to be precise, but in 1915 starts to develop. By 1916, it's become its, real, it's, its own art form. And one thing that all armies like to do is if they end up in a sector and they get a sense that the troops opposite them are a little bit soft, are a little bit comfortable, one thing that their commanders, whether they're German, French or British or even American, like to do is go, well, let's go and test them. Let's go and see what they're like. Let's go and raid them and make them uncomfortable. And so there is always this this sort of balance to be struck. Because on one hand, the soldiers will inevitably do things to try and make themselves comfier. They will find comforts, they'll find things to do. Whether it's scrounging things behind the line and shipping them into the trenches, whether it's decorating the trenches in some way, shape or form, whether it's flowers that the French are growing, or whether it's pin-up girls that all armies use on the, the walls of their uh, dugouts and so on. They'll do these things. And as you've painted a really good picture of the sort of the day-to-day the -day life in a trench, 24 hours in a trench. But of course, you've always got to be on your alert because if you're too soft, if you're too static, then there just might be a chance that 
Bursting through the barbed wire one night comes a great mass of Germans, French, British, Americans, and they're going to get in your trench and they're going to treat you very, very badly. And so there is always, even in the quiet sectors, even when it is a dull period of the war, when perhaps it's snowing or it's very cold and not a lot's happening, you always have that certain element of danger and fear. And there's also on top of that, there is the randomness of the trenches. And, and one of the saddest things I think that comes out of a lot of memoirs, diaries, letters is just how sudden and random death in the trenches can be. One minute you're talking to your friend Bill, and then all of a sudden there's a there's a burst. It can even be above you. Perhaps the shrapnel has burst far above you. It's not even well aimed, but a piece of metal flies down, hits him in the head, and he's dead. And it, it's that randomness of death in the trenches that causes a lot of hardship and a lot of concern. So even though, listeners, we've perhaps painted a picture that for many soldiers in the trenches, it's perhaps not that bad. Perhaps it's not that bad compared to their day-to-day -day life before the war. One thing that you don't really get before the war is the risk of being killed, captured, or mutilated by almost random acts of enemy fire. So even though intense combat is by no means the, the constant on the Western Front, there is always an element of danger. Yeah, and you know, as, as far as I can see, that there's a, a real courage that comes about as a result of this as well. I think quite often when we refer to people being courageous or brave out on the Western Front, the immediate image is people going over the top and attacking towards the enemy line, which of course is its own um, very rare, we should say, moment of courage that's required. But there's a, there's a courage in perseverance to my mind as well. And this is one of those things. If you imagine, you know, consider trench warfare to be your, your own house. And, uh, you know, everybody likes to have a nice peaceful sleep from time to time. Now, just imagine that once a month in somewhere along your street, a load of Germans are going to come in and club whoever's in that house to death or capture and beat them up. Or one day you walk into your house and all of a sudden your kitchen explodes at random intervals. It's going to happen every now and then up your street. And one day it might happen to your house. Just surviving and persevering in that kind of environment for me requires incredible levels of courage. And the late, great Richard Holmes once uh, once said something along those same lines in a, in a talk. And it was, uh, you know, what, what do you consider to be bravery in the, in the face of the enemy in the First World War? And he said, quite simply, staying. And I, I can really see why that's, uh, you know, why that is that way. It it's, doesn't take acts of, of superhuman endurance and courage and charging machine guns. It's simply being there and staying there. That in itself, for me, is incredibly brave. Um, there's simply, even behind the lines, nobody's ever ever far enough away to be safe from these random shells that are coming in. But we, we should mention, Spence, I think here, and, and this is maybe one of the things that perhaps some people sometimes don't realize in terms of trench rotation because the time you spend in a front line, whilst it is incredibly deadly, dangerous, and certainly doesn't make for a peaceful night's sleep, it's not all of the time. Frontline infantry units are not frontline the entire time. I know we've mentioned it briefly, but it might be worth just breaking this down a little bit. You know, the average average frontline soldier, and it's difficult to to kind of generalize in the first war at any point. But we can say, I think, at least with some certainty, that most frontline soldiers are not in the front line most of the time. That's very true. And it's interesting that as the war goes on, soldiers actually spend less and less time in the front line because there's more soldiers available. There's a better system of trench rotation. 
in fact, one of the problems that the British and to a lesser extent the uh, the German army actually have in 1914 and 15 is they leave troops too long in the trenches and they start to become worn out. They get diseases and, and get all kinds of uh, problems. But later on, all armies get better at rotating units in and out. And there's no standard pattern for this because it varies very much by your sector, by what's happening on the wider front, are you needed in a battle and so on. But in general, as by, by late 16 into 17, as a British soldier, you can expect to spend perhaps two weeks in a trench holding it and then two weeks out doing something else. Now, that doesn't mean that you're on leave necessarily or, or given freedom of the city. It probably means you're going to be carrying out fatigue duties which soldiers absolutely can't stand. Fetching, carrying, digging, repairing, day-to-day -day sort of work, or you're going to be carrying out training. And gradually, the British Army gets better at spend, getting its soldiers to spend more time training, which they quite enjoy, and is quite useful to them, and less time on fatigue duty. But in general, you're not actually spending most of your time in a trench, at least not in an ideal circumstance. You can actually spend more time out of the trench than you're going to spend in it. But of course, in times of intense combat and intense battle or intense pressure on the Western Front, you are going to end up stuck in areas which are, are very dangerous and are very, um, you know, featuring a lot of repair works needed. There's going to be a lot of bullets and shells in the air. But it is a really important point that for you could potentially spend, and unlikely, but possible, you could spend four years on the Western Front, or not four, let's say you start in 1915, you could spend three years on the Western Front and not spend the majority of your time in a trench. Now, that is unlikely, it has to be said, but depending on your rotations, that is possible. You do not spend extended periods in a trench if the army can help it, because you'll just be worn out. Because one thing we haven't really emphasised, perhaps, is that being in a trench is a pretty noisome environment. It's not pleasant in the trenches. And although there's strong efforts made to try and keep them sanitary, especially in the British side, you have latrine trenches separately, for example, inevitably these trenches attract all kinds of things you don't want. We've already mentioned trench foot. Um, there's a mysterious illness known as trench fever, the origin of which is still not really understood by modern medicine, but it manifests as an extremely severe type of flu that takes you out, and it's called trench fever because you have a raging fever. Uh, it's, it's a very serious disease. It'll kill you if it's left untreated. The only treatment is to take you out of the trench. There's there's rats. Rats are probably the most ubiquitous animal on the Western Front. You're going to see rats everywhere. Soldiers shoot at them. Soldiers do all kinds of things to them. Soldiers capture them and try and make them fight. So they, they do all kinds of things, but rats are everywhere. And in the summer months, flies are everywhere as well. And they'll get into every single part of the trench. They'll fly into the dugouts. They'll get in your food. They'll get in your hair. It's not pleasant. Even when it's quiet in a trench, it is not really a pleasant place to be. It's boiling hot in the summer. It's freezing cold in the winter. There's rats all year round and there's flies during the warmer months. It's pretty tough. So even if you're not spending that much time in the trench, I'm not sure I would have really wanted to spend any time in a First World War trench if I could have helped it. Yeah, you make a very good point there about just the unsanitary conditions. And, and it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise when we consider it. If you think about no man's land, and quite often the idea that we've got of no man's land is shell fire and barbed wire and all this kind of thing, I think you can also, to a certain extent, equate it to a rubbish tip. Because to think that those guys eating those three quarters of a can of bully beef in their trench are going to go and put them in a waste disposal bin behind the lines when they finish with that tin at some point, just not happening, I'm afraid. What happens is it gets thrown out into no man's land 
and uh, ends up rotting out there along with thousands of other jam jars and bits of waste food and tragically dead bodies, men who have been killed in attacks out in no man's land. This, of course, is the perfect breeding ground for rats and flies and maggots and all kinds of those things. So if you imagine when you're trying to catch a couple of hours sleep in your trench and you get a rat run over your face that wakes you up, well, just wonder where that rat's been in the minutes and hours before that, potentially feeding on bodies out in no man's land or rotten food and then dragging them into the trench. Incredibly unsanitary conditions. And I think for, for many reasons, that's why trench rotation is so important. The Brits particularly good at it. The Americans quite good at it when they come in. The Germans less so. They do rotate, but not so much. And in fact, their rotation gets significantly worse as the war goes on, uh, as their manpower gets strained more and more. Uh, that's we're not even really considering that just the general dangers, the fact that a you know a trench mortar round might come in and blow up a section of your trench or whatever it might be. Um, a colleague of mine, and I hope he doesn't mind me using it, um, uses this idea of uh, what he said once. It was a fascinating way of looking at it. He said trench warfare is a bit of an idea of that everyone has a cup of courage. What he means by that is imagine metaphorically having a glass and every time you go into trench warfare and you spend a few days in the front line, you take a sip and eventually that glass is going to empty. And by the time you get to that point, simply you cannot go on any longer. What it takes to refill that glass is going out of the front line, having a break from trench warfare. Everybody's got a different amount of liquid in their glass and everybody's got a different limit that they will reach. But I find it a fascinating way to think about it. At some point, people will reach their tolerance if they're kept in those awful environments for long enough. And at that point, of course, we know that's when we're going to be talking about shell shock, and PTSD, and these kind of things that are perhaps misunderstood in many ways in the Great War. But everybody's got a limit, and everybody's limit's different. And that's why this idea, at least to my mind, Spence, of, of people managing to just, just stay, let alone fight, just stay in that kind of environment is, is truly remarkable. It is. It's grueling out there. And it's it's grueling even if you're not involved in a major battle for reasons you've just said. And that metaphor about constantly taking a drink out of your cup of courage, I'm reminded of a, a really, really powerful book about this. Two books, actually, I'd mention. One is The Anatomy of Courage by Lord Moran, who was a medical officer in the First World War, later became closely associated with Winston Churchill. And his book, Anatomy of Courage, actually draws a very similar metaphor. He talks about courage is a bit like your bank account. You're constant, and if you're constantly spending from your bank account without giving it any time to refresh, eventually you're going to go bankrupt. It doesn't matter how much you start with, if you don't take time to refresh it, you will exhaust it. And he noted that in the war, sometimes it was the bravest and toughest men who would suffer the worst mental breakdowns because they'd just not given themselves time or space to recover. And as we've been emphasising, just being in the trenches exhausts that. And another book I'd recommend just about the the Nature of Courage in the First World War by A.P. Herbert, who we've mentioned previously mm. on the podcast, fought with the Royal Naval Division, the later 63rd Division, wrote a very, very good poem about Cameron Shute, which features on our General's episode, if you've not already heard it. And he wrote a great novel called The Secret Battle, which is 
actually about really the, the, the pressures on an officer, a fictitious officer, and about how cowardice can manifest itself even in the bravest. And it, it's a really powerful, reflective novel that may even be semi-autobiographical. But the key for both of these books, and of course the picture you've just painted is it's grueling to be in those trenches. It's it's draining, the constant danger, even if you're in a quiet sector. And then multiply that, of course, if you're in a, a dangerous sector like Ypres or so forth, or Verdun, it's very, very grueling. And no matter how much you might try and beautify your trench or make it comfortable or make it tolerable, no matter how much horseplay you might have, there is always that risk of a sudden random death or a sudden random act of violence. And that that is grueling for even the bravest of troops. Yeah, and it gives rise to something which I think is quite well known in terms of the story of the Great War. And, and, and I hope describing trench warfare to a certain extent, as we have done, will make it a little more logical because there are some what i think to an outside observer might look like really unsavory or really uncallous uh, really callous things that go on on the on the western front i'm reminded of a guy by the name of clifford lane who i've mentioned before with regards to the christmas truce he talks about capturing a trench in 1916 a former german trench in the schwaben redoubt and he says as he goes into this trench he can see uh, it's been really badly smashed up over weeks of fighting on the somme one of the one of the most heavily fought over parts of the entire Western Front at that time. And he says, as we go in, we see a number of dead Germans. And this is a recording, actually, in the Imperial War Museum's audio archive. You can look it up yourself. It's a fascinating listen. And uh, Lane says, we went into this trench and we could see a half-buried German kind of stuck into the trench floor. He'd been there a while. And he said, one of the things that sticks in my mind the whole time is uh, in order to get across this trench, we had to stand on this chap's belly he said, as we did, his tongue would stick out. And he said, it was the funniest thing we'd seen in weeks. Everybody was laughing and all of this kind of... Thing. And I was listening to this, utterly shocked, thinking, what on earth is going on? And, and Lane, who's laughing himself in the interview, all of a sudden collects himself and says something along the lines of, you know, it, it sounds utterly awful to say that, but that's just how things had gone by then. We'd been in trench warfare for so long that we'd just become inured to it. It was just, it was just another thing. And I can totally understand that, how, how people just become callous to it. There are stories of, of men shaking hands with arms sticking out of trenches and various other things like this. And there's a real gallows humour, Spence, that develops in and around trench warfare in general, which to modernise can look utterly callous. It can. And just as you were sharing that anecdote and reminded of an anecdote that actually comes from the Worcestershire Regiment and finds its way actually into one of their regimental histories where they're down on the Somme and they've captured a, a portion of German trench and there's a, some chap's arm is sticking out of the wreckage that they're occupying and they turn a trench into it and this chap's arm's there and of course the, the army's slowly rotting away but it becomes a, a sort of standard practice for when you pass it you shake hands with whoever this poor chap is until eventually this chap's hand breaks off at which point the hand is then handed around all the soldiers and everyone shakes it before it's thrown into no man's land and that seems just unbelievably callous and cruel and you know, where's the humanity in this? But it's recorded as a humorous anecdote in the regimental history. Wasn't this a hoot? You know, this, this chap's hand, presumably a German soldier's hand, uh, came off and we th eventually we threw it into no man's land. But when you're surrounded by this kind of, of scenery, this kind of carnage, this smell, let's not forget the smell mm. of the trenches is mm. pretty obnoxious. What else can you do? 
gallows humour becomes a way to link yourself with your fellow soldiers to actually turn the death and destruction around you into a source of fun and humour might seem very callous to us now. Sat here, we're comfortable, we're safe, hopefully. Uh, we don't have to worry about these things. But when it's around you all the time, how do you rob it of its terrible power? Well, you make it a source of fun. You make it a figure of fun. You laugh at the situation. And Gallo's humour is bleak. And the Gallo's humour of the First World War is exceptionally bleak. And it, I don't think it translates that well. I've Over the years, I've known particularly students, especially undergraduate students, will sometimes give them samples of trench newspapers, which are full of gallows humour. They're another subject I'd love to cover in the future, trench, uh, trench newspapers and trench magazines. And they're full of gallows humour, these trench newspapers. And the students read them and go, oh, that's awful. That's horrible. That's terrible. And it does look awful and horrible and terrible. But how else are you going to keep yourself from cracking up in these circumstances, which if you just approach them completely logically, they're absolutely awful. Yeah, it's um, I mean, trench warfare is one of those that we could cover in so many details. But I think, in a sense, we'll never really understand, at least from a First World War perspective. You know, it's something you could study and study and study. And I, I take quite a lot of time to listen to veteran accounts wherever possible. The Imperial War Museum's archive is fascinating to give an idea of this. But I don't think we can ever really truly understand it. Perhaps, tragically, there are people in the world, in Europe at this very moment, who are learning to understand that kind of thing. It's, a, it's another story, maybe for another podcast, that one. But it's, um, you know, it was such a unique set of circumstances that people found them in. And surprisingly, Spencer, I think, as we start to round this one up, it's important to understand that this isn't for a, a finite period of time. This doesn't go on until the 11th of November 1918, then everybody goes home. In fact, trench warfare is in terms of the Great War, has a reasonably limited lifespan. It's the main body of the middle, but it's not the start and it's not the end. No, it's not. And we mentioned this previously in the, the Passchendaele episode as trench warfare begins to change in 1917 as the Germans start to move towards a defence in depth system based on pillboxes and bunkers. Um, we've also discussed it in the 1918 episodes because by 1918, the trench lines are changing anyway, but they get broken up, of course, by the German Spring Offensive and then by the Hundred Days Offensive. Now, that doesn't mean the entire Western Front evaporates overnight, but large sections of it stop looking like it's looked for the past three years. The barbed wire is breached. Those trenches that people have been living in for years are overrun, captured or destroyed. And instead, troops are fighting in a way that a soldier of the Second World War would recognise. Yes, they dig in. Any soldier that stops for a length of time will dig in in some way, shape or form. But now there's a lot more occupying villages, defending woods, defending geographical positions with trenches. Yes, people do dig in, but the Western Front itself becomes porous and you get these great breaches in some of the areas we've been talking about, like the Somme, like the Riverine, like the Eat Front, where suddenly people are fighting in a very different way. And once the Hindenburg Line, this phenomenal piece of fortification constructed in 1916, once the Hindenburg Line's breached by Allied forces in September 1918, the fighting that follows then looks much more like the Second World War, with groups going forward, encountering each other in villages and woods and so forth. And one of the fascinating aspects of the First World War is how quickly the armies transition from fighting in this very static style, which they've done for years and become experts in, to suddenly fighting and manoeuvring as if it was 1914 again, or, or perhaps more accurately, as if it was 1940 or 41. Because as we've discussed previously, you've got tanks, aircraft, light machine guns, mortars, 
it looks so much more modern, and yet the troops actually have to get used to it. And a point on that actually worth making is the troops find themselves getting exhausted so much more quickly in 1918 because you're moving so much more. One of the problems actually the British have in trench warfare is they find their soldiers start to get fat because they're not moving around that much. Yes, it's cold, but they're eating a lot and they're not really exercising. And there has to be a program to actually improve gymnastic performance for the soldiers in 1915. 1918, you're moving, marching, charging, diving to the ground, taking cover, digging a trench, clearing a village. It's really demanding psychologically and physically after years of being in the trenches. It's fascinating when you think about it, how the, the Great War ends in a, a much more mobile environment. And you can imagine, in many ways, those guys who are leaving behind trench warfare for the, for the last time, perhaps not knowing it at that time, that really the line is going to be on the move and it's going to stay on the move really from the 8th of August right through to the 11th of November. I'm pretty certain very few people were sad to see the back of trench warfare. It had been a, a horrific experience, but importantly, an experience from a British perspective at least that's shared by 5.4 million men throughout the Great War. I mean, close to a million of those sadly don't live to see the end of it, but it's a shared experience of over 4 million people back home in the UK in the 1920s and 30s have this, if you like, this access to this unique club of knowing what it was like to live and survive in the trenches of the Great War. And I can imagine that there was a, a certain knowing feeling amongst them when they went to, when they walked about the streets back in Civilian Street in, uh, in the 1920s. It's, it's quite remarkable. And looking at images and uh, particularly images of veterans going back in the years after the war to visit their old trenches is very, very powerful and really recommend it. It's, uh, there's some fascinating stories in the memoirs that come about in the 1920s of life in trench warfare, um, certainly replace study. So a fascinating subject, Spence, one that no doubt we could cover so many elements on. It, it's one that no doubt we'll return to. And uh, I, I think even now is perhaps understudied and, and there's still more room, I think, to really explore this subject and find out what trench warfare was all about. There certainly is, because bear in mind, listeners, trench warfare is taking place just on the Western Front. Uh, forget the other national fronts. On the Western Front alone, it is covering 400 miles of trench. And the differences between fighting right up on the English Channel coast to fighting right down on the Swiss border are really remarkable. Differences of geography, differences of the nature of the fighting there, uh, differences of, of where you dig your trench. There's a, even some climatic changes. You know, it's colder down by the Swiss border than it is up on the English Channel, for example. Um, all these different factors mean that to actually pick out a universal experience of life in a trench is basically impossible. It varies so much by sector, by period of the war and so forth. And that's what makes it so endlessly fascinating. You can study it from so many different angles. You can study it different perspectives, national perspectives, um, perspectives based on time or battle, battle area or the fighting that was going on, and you'll find something new. But you made a really good point there, Dan, and that's that there was a generation of soldiers British, French, German, American, other nationalities, who now had trench language and uh, an experience of being in a trench. And in fact, certainly in Britain and parts of the English-speaking world, we now say when you're about to take on a task or so forth, we, we're about to go over the top, which of course comes from the First World War. You're about to leave your trench and attack. And 
that became a, a standard saying used somewhat ironically in Britain in the 1920s and 30s as a way of saying, well, this task is difficult, but it's nothing like going over the top on the trenches. And we've sort of lost that little subtlety now in the 21st century, but it just shows the influence that life in trenches, the experience of being a soldier in a trench had not merely in the war, but for decades to come. Well, there we go, ladies and gents. That brings us to the end of today's uh, exploration of trenches, life in trenches, and trench warfare during the First World War. Thanks very much again for joining us. Uh, if you haven't, do please leave a review. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, and it really, really helps us. Whichever method you're using to uh, to listen to this, do please feel free to do that. As ever, if you have any questions, um, do send them our way. We'd love to hear them. We'd love to include them in future podcasts. And of course, if you've enjoyed this and you feel so inclined, we'd love it if you consider sharing, sharing the news of Not So Quiet on the Western Front with your nearest and dearest. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. Particularly students, especially undergraduate students, will sometimes give them samples of trench newspapers, which are full of gallows humour. They're another subject I'd love to cover in the future, trench, uh, trench newspapers. I thought you meant students. <laughs> <laughs> you could have that. <laughs>